thank, thank you, Josh, for, uh, for sharing. Today, um, today, we're going to talk about the greatest, uh, the greatest story ever told. We're going to look at it by looking at another one of the greatest stories ever told. The greatest story ever told. They're both true stories. The greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus. And I want to tell it through the lenses of, because it's all about Jesus, but I want to share it through the lens of um, a story that is familiar, a true story that's familiar to, to most people, whether you've grown up in church or not. It's a true story of a man named David and a man named Goliath. Um, anyone ever heard this story before? All right, good. I want you to do something real quick. I want you to uh, turn to the person next to you and think about this for a second. Think about what is one word to describe the story of David and Goliath. Just one word. Okay, just look to the person next to you and talk about that. One word. Okay, ready, go. All right. One word, any words? One, three, three, seven. Okay. That's a video game term, right? Okay, good. What else? Anything else? Underdog. How many of you guys, the word underdog came up in your conversation? Okay, some of y'all. Okay. Uh, anything else? Any other words? Cool, conquer, brave. All right, good. A lot of times when our culture talks about David and Goliath, they frame it in the context of there's this giant named Goliath and there's this little dude named David. Um, It's the classic underdog story. So you hear this in the language of movies. You hear this in the language of sports all the time. Any team that plays against the Redskins, they're the David and the Redskins are the Goliath. It's always like that. You see this in movies, movies like Rudy, a true David and Goliath story. Rocky, right? Rocky 1 through 18, a true... David and Goliath story. You see this in uh, Seabiscuit. Oh, my gosh, the little broken guy, and this is like a giant. And, and that's typically how we hear David and Goliath presented. In fact, there's a recent book called, uh, written by a man named Malcolm Gladwell. Anyone read Malcolm Gladwell? Okay, so a couple of few of y'all. Okay, good. So he's, uh, all five of his books were New York Times bestsellers, Tipping Point Outliers. And he, he wrote this recent one about David and Goliath, and his basic premise is to kind of challenge the conventional thinking about David as the underdog and Goliath as the favorite. And he says his basic, and I'm not going to give a critical response to it. He's not writing from a Christian perspective, but it's an interesting idea. He flips that convention on its head, and he says, we fail to understand a couple things about the nature of underdogs when we look at the David and Goliath story. He says, the first thing that we fail to understand, a conventional truth that we overlook, is that underdogs... They they grow because they have to look at things from a different perspective. They have to step outside of the box because they know that in hand-to-hand combat, they can't win. So they have to look outside the box. Therefore, David, as the underdog, was really the favorite because he could use a sling and throw it from long distance. Here's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is not only that, we fail to understand the cost and the price of being the favorite. He says what looked like Goliath's advantage also had its disadvantage. The fact that he was massive caused him to be extremely slow and not agile. It also caused him, as most most gigantic people are, they can't see very well. This is what Gladwell is proposing. So the question is, is being an underdog good or is being an underdog bad? And with all due respect to people like Malcolm Gladwell, 
I don't think the story of David and Goliath has anything to do with either of these. That's not what it's all about. So what is it all about? All right, let's go to work. First Samuel chapter 17. Uh, the whole chapter is about David and Goliath, but I want to focus on a few verses, and I'm going to um, read. We'll start verses 1 through 11, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll jump to chapter uh, to, to verse 32 and read a few verses, and then we'll, we'll end starting at, at verse 45. Okay, this is 1 Samuel 17. I would encourage you to go back home today and read through the whole chapter. Now, this is starting in verse 1. This is God's word. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes, Damim, between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Okay, let's jump to verse 32. David, is, he's just a teenager at this time. David said to Saul in verse 32, let no one lose heart and account to this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. In verses 45 to 50. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin but i come against you in the name of the lord almighty the god of the armies of israel whom you have defied this day the lord will hand you over to me and i'll strike you down and cut off your head today i'll give the carcasses of the philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there's a god in israel all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the lord saves for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine army moved closer to attack, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. 
So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. This is God's word. This is so exciting. I love it. (laughs) So the Israelites and the Philistines are, are enemies. They hate each other. It's been that way for a long time. In fact, if you read in the book of Judges, we read, we, we just kind of scooted quickly through the book of Judges. But the Judges tell us that the Israelites' worst enemy were the Philistines. They were kind of like the bane of the Israelite existence. In fact, Judges 9.16 tells us that the reason they wanted a king. You remember Israel asked for a king and God said it's not the right time. But they said we need one to be like the other nations. So God said, okay, I'm going to give you a king. Saul was the first king. The reason why they asked for this, Judges 9, 16, is because they wanted to fight and beat the Philistines. They hated each other. They were the worst enemy to the Israelites during this season of the Israelite existence. So what's happening here? Earlier, um, just in chapters 13 and 14, the Israelites, uh, Jonathan, who was the son of of, of King Saul, and his, his armor bearer, they led a bunch of farmers pretty much. They took a bunch of farmers and said, let's attack the Philistines. And so they romped them. They beat them. They they beat them really bad. And the Philistines were very angry. They said, we've come to get revenge. And so what we see here, 1 Samuel 17, is the revenge of the Philistines. It should have been a massacre in the Philistine advantage, but it turns out to be the greatest victory that Israel would know. Why? In one word, It's God. But I want to share three things about the kind of victory that God brought to the Israelites against the Philistines. The first thing is God brought victory when victory was impossible. So you've got Israel and you've got the Philistines and they're, they're both kind of camping out in the same area. Israel is in the central part. The Philistines are in the southern part, southwestern part. And so they're meeting together to fight this battle, and they come together. Israelite comes, Israel comes down from the north. Uh, the Philistines come up from the south, and they meet at this valley called the Valley of Elah. Okay, you see that in verses 1 through 3, right? Valley of Elah in, 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 in verse 2. Okay, so they assemble there in the valley, and out of this group of Philistines comes this massive giant named Goliath. Can you imagine this? You guys are assembled in your lines. This is your army, and this is like my army, and... And, and out of this group comes, boom, this like fee fi fo fum this massive nine-foot mother of all creatures. Like, what in the world is this thing? And Goliath rolls out. And it, verse 4, champion named Goliath came out. He was over nine feet tall. Hey, this is huge. If Shaquille O'Neal was an Israelite, he would look at Goliath and say, he's really tall. If, if Andre the Giant, Andre the Giant was a Jewish person, he would say, that guy's a giant. Hey, this guy is massive. Okay, I, I, I tried this the other day just to try and figure out what nine feet tall is. I put Manny on my shoulders and I stood up. And I put Elijah on her shoulders. And then I put Elise on, her sho- on his shoulders. Nine feet tall. That's how tall. That's huge. I didn't really do that. Don't go home and... Try that with a newborn baby. Don't do that. But nine feet tall, he is massive. And he comes out and he, he's talking smack. Verse eight, why do you come out and line up? He says, am I not a Philistine? Literally, it says, am I not the Philistine? 
There's a difference between saying you are a man and you are the man, right? He's saying, I am not just a Philistine. He's saying, I am the Philistine. I'm the baddest man alive. I am the Philistine of the Philistines. I'm the man. And he challenged, he said, hey, just send someone out. Let's fight. Let's do this. Israel, you think you're all that? Come out, send a man, and, and send in the fight against me. And the Israelites were like, no, may, maybe not. And so they go back. And so day after day, it says 40 days for 40 days. For all of Lent, in the morning he would come out and he would, they would wake him up. He would wake them up. He would wake them up with his voice saying, God, oh, come and fight me and, and all this stuff. And, and, and they're like, uh, who's going to fight him? Not me. Nobody wants to fight him. Nighttime, he'd come back out. He's like, y'all ready? Y'all do your workout. You guys ready to fight me? And no one wanted to fight, and they were completely demoralized. I, uh, when I was in middle school, I used to play basketball a lot with, with some of my buddies at, at church. Probably about 13, 14 years old, and there's about 8 to 10 of us we'd play. And there's one park, this one school we used to play at called Marshall Road Elementary School. We played there because they had these 8-foot rims that we could, like middle schoolers, do all these like dunks on them. And we thought we were bad because we're playing there. So one day we were playing there. That was like our court. And there are these other people that were playing there. They were kind of looked like they were similar age to us, and, and they challenged us to play. And so we said, okay, we'll play. All of them were same age as us, except there was one guy. We're like 13, 14. There was this one guy who was like 23 years old. He had a mustache. <laughs> so looked like one of those guys. He like dropped out of middle school or something like that. And he's like playing with these guys. And he was like, we were all like five foot nothing. He's like 6'2 or something, playing on an eight-foot eight foot basket. They're like, you guys want to play? So we're like, all right, we'll play. And we're kind of looking at that guy. We're like, he's kind of big. And so, you know, here's us. We're playing with each other. We're throwing each other alley-oops and all this stuff. And we're playing against this cat. And he's blocking all of our shots. And after every time he blocked a shot, he he would say, get it out of here. Get it out of here. That's all he would say, block the shot. Get it out of here. And I thought he said that like 15 times. Like, man, that must be the only thing he knows. He blocked. He said, get it out of here. So we're like, you try now. You try Someone else would go, and he's like, you want some too? Get it out of here. And we're like, man, this stinks. He was blocking all of our stuff because he's like 18 feet bigger than all of us. I wish that there was a happy ending to this story that finally one of us like did a cacao and flushed it, but not, nothing like that. We all, we left. We were like feeling like losers, <laughs> like blaming each other. Like you should have thrown that alley you better. Doesn't matter. That guy took up like 18 feet. He had a wingspan of like a falcon. He couldn't, couldn't do anything. And so we went home that day feeling like losers, dismayed, depressed, ready to give up playing basketball for the rest of our lives. But day after day, for 40 days, they come out to play, get it out of here. (laughs) Who's next? Get it out. Nobody. So they all went back dejected because of this giant Goliath, and he's talking all this smack. That's probably the worst thing. You can get beat up one time, but this guy keeps on talking trash. Like, nah, 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 all this stuff. And he's like smack talking. And so they're like, we don't want, I don't want to fight him. Who's going to fight him? You fight him. Look, let me ask you a question. Who's supposed to fight him? Who's supposed to fight him? Here's another question that will give you the answer. When you hear the description of Goliath, okay, when you hear the description of Goliath, first of all, well, let me read it. Verse five, he had a bronze helmet, coat of scale armor of bronze. Weighing 5,000 shekels. I know not many of us in here are Jewish, so you know what it, how much a shekel weighs? I'm not sure, but it says that 5,000 of them is 125 pounds. And his armor alone weighed as much as David. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze 
javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. Can you imagine that? His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. I don't know what that means either. (laughs) And its iron point weighed 600 shekels, which is 15 pounds. So the iron point of his shaft weighed 15 pounds. So um, apparently he's like ready to throw this. And he had a shield bearer going ahead of him. Why does it say this? Did you know? One of the great Jewish scholars is a guy named Robert Alter, probably the best of all time, and he just knows everything about Jewish literature, Hebrew narratives, and he says that whenever you read Hebrew narratives, you never read a person being described in the detail that Goliath is here. Hey, think about your reading of the Old Testament. You ever recall hearing someone being described in this way? You hear that Esau was red and hairy, that's it. You read that Rachel was lovely and form and beautiful. But where else do you read this kind of description? He says it's unprecedented. Why? Because the author is trying to communicate that this guy bronze was like the cutting edge material of the day. And four, four times it says things are made of bronze. This is like the under armor. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, Goliath, where'd you get that? And this is high tech stuff, armor, 125 pounds. He's the man and he's towering. And the picture that's being painted here is that he is an impossible, impenetrable foe. And day after day, he's mocking the armies of Israel. <clears throat> and so they're like, we don't want to fight him. Again, who's supposed, then who's supposed to fight him? The description of Goliath is supposed to hearken us back to the description of another. Does that remind you of anyone? If you jump back to chapter 9, verse 2, here's what it says. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites. Why? A head taller than any of the others. Look at what it says in chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 23. They ran and brought him, him as Saul, out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said, hey, do you see the man? There's no one like him among all the people. The people shouted, long live the king. If there's one person, you know, this was the day that Saul was born for. He was a head taller than all of the other Israel. If there's anyone that should fight him, it's him. Okay, look, but look at what it says. Look at what it says in verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. This is his one shining moment of glory. The reason they wanted a king was to defeat the Philistines. And here's his chance, Saul. Here's your chance to go do it. But Saul's like, I ain't going to do it. (laughs) Not me. Uh, He's a little bit too big. I'm not going to do it. So listen, if your greatest champion is too scared to fight their greatest champion, then what hope do you have? If your biggest, strongest, baddest man is dismayed and terrified at the object of your national scorn, then who's going to fight? Who's going to do this? You see the picture that's being painted not only of Goliath as a foe, but of the wimpiness of Saul, is saying, this is impossible. There is no human way in which this giant is going to collapse. Victory is impossible for the people of God. 
It is extremely clear when you read the, through the lenses of Hebrew narrative that this is the picture that's being painted here. It will require, if Israel is going to win, it's going to require an act of God. If you've ever been in an accident, or you've ever gotten an insurance paper, you ever read legal paperwork, there's a provision for something called an act of God, right? It's an earthquake, it's a hurricane, it's a flash flood, it's something like that, that no human being, this could not be attributed to any human being. The only way that Goliath is going to fall is through an act of God. And it will not be credited to a human being, not even an underdog story like David. The first thing we see here is that God's going to bring victory when victory is impossible. The second thing is God brings victory out of weakness, not out of strength. For all the pains that the author takes to describe Goliath as an invincible, as a picture of strength, the same is showing, the same is true about the weakness of David. Starting in verse 12, He's the son of an Ephraimite named Jesse, Ephrathite named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons. And then it goes on to say that the three oldest sons followed Saul into war. Okay, so you have eight sons. And the way that it works is that the older you are, the more suitable for war you are. The stronger you are, the more ready you are to fight. And so he's got eight sons. The oldest three go with him to war, to the battle lines, and they're ready to supposedly fight, but they're too chicken also, right? Verse 3 says, verse 14, David was the youngest. Okay, so in your totem pole of fighters, David is the last one. In fact, he's not even, he's not even in the picture, 15. David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So Bethlehem, David was a little shepherd. Okay? 18 miles away in the Valley of Elah, this is where the rest of the fighting was going on. So back and forth, he was going back and forth 18 miles he would run, and what was he doing running there? Verse 17 tells us, and you could read this later. He was a dude who was bringing food to the fighters. He wasn't a fighter. He was a Papa John's delivery boy. That's who he was. There was no, we've got all of these people fighting, and uh, David, hey, you just bring food to them. Bring the cheese, right? Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. That's all he's doing. He's just this little teenage boy, Aaron boy. He's the water boy, not a player. He's just sitting on the bench. Hey, when they needed something, hey, hey, David, get up, take some food. And he would bring it to the people fighting. This guy is not a fighter. He's not a warrior. He's, he's, he's none of these things. This is David. And so here he's going. And finally gets to the, to the battle lines. He hears the Philistine talking. And then it says in verse 28, right? David gets there. Verse 28, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the fighting men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? <laughs> Basically, he's, he's, he's belittling David. You don't even have a lot of sheep. Who'd you leave those few sheep with? And he says, I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Verse 29. Typical youngest, youngest son. Now what have I done? Can't I even speak? Isn't that what little boys do? This is David. What did I do this time? This is like, oh, this, is, this is Elijah. He's like, sometimes Nanny and her friends are playing in her room and 
And Olive will cut up some fruit and something and say, Elijah, Elijah, come here. And he'll pitter-patter his like bare feet over and <laughs> give him the fruit to take. They give this to give this to Manny and her friends. And so he'll pitter-patter and run over there and thinking he's going to come back for his own. But he's hanging out there for like two minutes, three minutes. All of a sudden, we hear Manny scream, no, Elijah, no, Elijah, Elijah, no, no. And so we'll run in there and we'll say, hey, 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 what's going on? And Elijah just looks at us like, what did I, I didn't do anything. Manny's like, don't you see? This is the girls' only club. It's only girls, Elijah. Go, go back to mom and dad. You're not supposed to play here because he didn't belong here. That's what they're saying to David also. Get out of here, David. You don't belong here. Why? This is for the men. These are for the fighting people. These are the people who know how to fight. You're just a shepherd boy. You're just a little guy who brings us food. Just go back, David. Go back. He didn't belong in that place. Just a boy. You got these grown men, and you got this massive giant waiting to fight. Let me, let me think about this and talk about this for a second. You've got three kinds of people here. You've got Goliath. You've got Goliath who says, I can do it. I can do this. He's relying on his own strength. I can do this. He ends up dead. You've got Saul who says, I can't do this. And all the men of Israel along with him, I can't do this, I can't do this. And so they're quivering in fear on the battle line. And then you've got David who says, I can't do this. But there's a God who can. You see, God always, 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 always chooses to work through weakness and not through strength. God opposes the proud. You hear this throughout the Bible, but he gives grace to the humble. You wanna, do you want to know God's power in your life? Then you have to, the, the problem with both Goliath and Saul is that they were both looking at themselves. Goliath looked at himself and said, I can do this. Saul looked at himself and said, I can't do this. But it was David who looked up at God because he knew, this battle isn't about me. This is not about me. Look at it in verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Verse 36. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 45. Uh, the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He knows that this battle is not, it's not about Israel because what, he knows it's about Israel. But when you attack Israel, you attack their God. And when you have, you have battles in the ancient Near East, you know that the winner of an army is oftentimes showing whose God is stronger. And so David is saying, listen, this is not about me, and it's not about you, and it's not about him. This is about God. This is about God and about whose God is stronger. And, and David's saying it doesn't, he, does, he, could use any, he could use anyone, but someone who just gives a care about the fact that God is being defiled because he knows that this is God's battle, it's God's fight, and that God's going to be the one doing it. See, the grace of God, the power of God, it always flows downhill to the people who recognize that I need it the most. The times when you will see God's power at work in your life the most is when you are the most desperate for God. The times when you'll see God's power at work in your life the most is when you're clinging and throw yourself upon everything that he has and say, God, I can't do it. I'm at the end of my rope because God always 
works in weakness and not in strength in order that he might be the one to receive the glory. You've got a strong person and they win a battle. And you'll look at them and say, well, they did it because they were strong. But when you get a wimpy person to win a battle, you know that it could only have been done through God. And yeah, God can work through powerful people, but he works through powerful people when they humble themselves and realize that it is only God that can do through me what I couldn't ever do on my own. It's when these world-famous doctors, and I, I... um, had the opportunity when I was in college to know the vice president provost. He was in charge of the UVA, Virginia Medical School, um, the hospital, and the nursing school. And he was a world-famous cardiologist, and he said, I can't do anything. God is the healer, and I am a conduit of his healing power. And so God elevated Dr. Cantrell to positions of prominence so that he could do amazing things for the work of God. God always works not through strength, but through weakness. You heard the story of the 10-year-old boy last week in Atlanta who got kidnapped by this 20-some-year-old man. He got kidnapped, and basically 10-year-old was walking his chihuahua, and he saw money on the ground that this kidnapper had planted there. And so he went to get the money, and the guy grabbed him and threw him into his car. And so this guy, the the, the man said, shut up, don't talk, or I'm going to kill you. So he said, all right, I'm not going to talk, I'm going to sing. And so for three hours... He sang a song of praise called Every Praise. I've never heard of it before, Every Praise. But it, I, I Googled the words. It says, God is my Savior. God is my healer. God is my deliverer. Yes, he is. And every praise belongs to God. Think about the odds here. You've got a 20-some-year-old man screaming threats at this 10-year-old boy. And I saw a picture of the boy. He's not like, he's not like Biggie. He's like, He's small. You got 20-some-year-old man and a 10-year-old boy. Who's going to win the battle? The guy's shouting threats at him. The guy sings, prays for three hours. God's my savior. He's my deliverer. Yes, he is. And the guy says, shut up, shut up. Finally, after three hours, he says, get out of my car. Without a scratch on him, it was released. Because God delights to work in weakness and not in strength so that all praise and glory and honor would go to him and to no man and no woman. God works, brings victory, brought victory through weakness, not through strength. The last thing that we see, last thing, God brought victory to many through the one. To many through the one. So David goes up and he fights, but why didn't anyone want to fight? Okay, we've we've talked about this. We kind of beat this to a pulp. But the reason nobody wanted to fight, for one, was because Goliath was massive. But the second reason, here's the second reason. Verse 9, chapter 17. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. The reason no one wants to fight is not, it's not just, oh, my life is, is I'm going to get killed. But the reason no one wants to fight is because generations are at stake here. Because if I lose, then it's my family, it's my children, it's all of my people that are going to be enslaved to these, our sworn enemies. Who can handle that kind of pressure? Nobody wants to deal with that. No one wants to deal with that. And so no one wants to fight. 
what is it? Do, do things like this really happen where one person represents like all of these people? When I was on, it was, I think it was like my second or third mission trip, I went down to Mexico with some, some folks in college, and it was through an organization that, that brought in people from all over the states, and there's a group from Alaska there, and I, I've shared this in the past. But there's a group from Alaska, and we were there, a bunch of us Korean-American people from Virginia area, and the guys, they, they really wanted to play basketball. And so we said, okay, yeah, we love basketball too, so let's play together. And so we had this game. It was going to be the last day of the trip after we've done everything right before we parted ways we said, all right, let's play. And they're talking smack. And, and we're like, you know, we're trying to be humble Christians. We're not talking smack. We let them be the bad Christians. So um, we're basically, there's a lot of, uh, a, a of buildup to this. And so it gets to the day that we're playing. And they're like, all right, we need, to, we need to raise the stakes here because all these people are watching. Mexican people are watching and our team members and all these people are watching. Like, all right, we got we to gotta up the ante. And so they said, they, and they came up with this like semi-racist idea. They said, listen, if you guys lose, then all of you guys have to go back to Korea. All right. And they said, if we lose, then we'll, um, Alaska will no longer be a state. <laughs> so we said, all right, that's fine. Obviously, um, it was not a real wager, but that's what we were saying. But did things like that really happen? I forgot who won. We're still here, so in Alaska still a state, so I don't know. But do things like that really happen where one group represents everybody else? I think it does. In fact... In Babylonian records, it talks about how in these times, they would have one representative fighting on behalf of many people. But I think on a, on a visceral level, we understand this too. You ever been to college or if you've been to a high school with a strong sports program or uh, you watch the Olympics and you cheer for a country or you know, come September every Sunday, uh, we, we see this played out. Let me make it concrete. So for, for most of us, we'll understand what this means. Um, every Sunday during uh, September until January and into February for this year for the Redskins, um, the Redskins are going to be playing, and we all understand what this is like. You know, so we're all gathered together, and after we, we have a great time of worship, we're like, all right, let's go and let's watch some football somewhere. And so we all gather somewhere, and we're watching this game, and, and the Redskins, as, as usual, they're, they're dominating and they're winning, and at the end... Everybody celebrates. And we're like, yeah, and we're giving each other high fives. And, and what do we say? We say, we won. We did it. We're undefeated again. Super Bowl champions one more time, and we're so excited. And everyone's giving each other a high five and say, yeah, I knew we could do it. No one ever in that group, uh, some, maybe a trader got in, and they're like, You're not a, they're not a Redskin fan, but somehow they came in. They don't go up to us and say, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, you look a little bit small to be playing football. Um, how did you win? Considering that the, that the game was in Washington and you're in Orlando and it, we just, the game just ended 10 minutes ago, how can, how can you be part of the, the winning team? Did you punt a ball? Did you kick a ball? Did you throw it? Did you catch it? Did you score? Did you tackle anybody? No one ever says that. Why? Because we know in our hearts what that means when their victory uh, becomes our victory. And we identify so closely with it that we can say we won that their joy becomes our joy and their celebration becomes ours. It's called representative warfare, where one person rises up to fight on behalf of the many. So this is what we see happening here. David rises up against the giant Goliath, one versus one for the sake of many people. And David, as you go on to see, slays Goliath, 
throws that, hurls that, that stone, it sinks into his head, and Goliath falls face down. And the people of Israel, these cowardly, fearful, didn't lift a stone, didn't lift a sword, didn't lift a spear, didn't lift, a, didn't lift their finger. All they did was quake and quiver in fear. Yet the victory of David is credited to them. When you think about this, the Israelites and the Philistines hated each other. The Israelites were God's people. The Philistines were the bad guys. God could have gotten rid of the Philistines in a number of different ways. But why did he do it this way? Have you ever thought about that? He could have done it in a lot of different ways. But why did he do it the way that he did? Why did he do it one-on-one? And why did he do it against a giant? And why did he use David, of all people? He could have used an anonymous boy like Jesus did in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. It was a young boy. It could have been a young boy here too, who says, how dare you defy the armies of the living God? Why did it have to be David? What is God trying to communicate to us here? Well, I think we understand when we think about who would you be if you were living on the front lines of the Israelite battlefield that day? Who would you be? See, the way that most people tell the story is that you've got to be like David. You can defeat the giants of your life. You can defeat the giants. You know what? No, we can't. Have you ever tried? And have you ever tried to have the hopes of an entire nation pinned on you and you go do right? You go do right, and you go do it right every single time. I promise you, I promise you that you can't, and you won't. And I promise you that I don't, and I won't, and I will continue to fail. You know what? You and I are not like David. You know who we're like? We're like Saul, shaking and quivering in fear of the giant before us because we know we can't do it. Who can handle the pressure of having an entire, an entire people and generations on your shoulders, and then go do it, and you go fight this giant. We would die of stress before we even get to the front lines of battle. We would buckle under the stress of it all. We are not David. What's the point? What's the point? The point is not you got to be like David. The point is we need one like David. We need a savior. We need a champion. We need someone who's going to come and fight the battle for us. You see, this is all about Jesus, because everything in the Old Testament is one story. Everything in the Bible is one story. Everything is point in the Old Testament. It prepares us. It points to, it prepares the way for Jesus Christ to come. Because here's your reality, and here's my reality. We faced an impossible giant. You know what those giants are? It's death. You, you ever tried to defeat death? You can't. I promise you, you can't. You ever tried to defeat sin? You can't. I can't, not every time at least. You try and defeat hell, these things will continue to come out to the front line and they will torment you and they will mock you and they'll say, you're coming, your time is coming. Every time you look in the mirror, you know that your time is coming. Every time you go into your prayer closet and you think about your sins, you know that you failed again. And Satan will mock you and mock you and tease you and torment you because there's an impossible battle that's waiting for you. And day after day it comes 
And he says, you know what? You screwed up again. Jordan, you messed up again. Monica, you messed up again. You know what, Ruby? Here you are. You're not going to do it. Josh, you can't do it. And constantly attacking us, mocking us, talking smack. We don't need to be David. We need one who is greater than David. And so here's what God did in weakness. He sent forth a champion to be born not in a mansion, but born in a manger. To live not in a mansion, but to live in a way. He, he had no place to lay his head at night. He was a homeless man. And then in weakness, he died on the cross. And so here we are. Our champion has been defeated. And if we walk away from the lines of battle, knowing that we have lost, his defeat represents our defeat. His enslavement represents our enslavement. We walk away hanging our heads as we did every day for our lives, but we walk away ultimately in fear. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Isn't that what we celebrated last week? Isn't that what we celebrated last week? Defeating death by death. And so we say, where is your sting now? You can talk all your smack to us, but here's the reality. You've been defeated, Satan. You've been defeated, death. Where is your victory? The sting of death has been taken away by the victory of Jesus. The victory of the one becomes victory for the many. See, this isn't about us trying harder to be like David. It never was. This is about the victory that God alone can bring. And it's when we begin to realize that God has brought ultimate victory to you and me that we, can, that we can go out and we can be bold. We can be brave. We can attack knowing that even if we fail, ultimately we will never fail because Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead. The only thing he's saying is you need to recognize that he is your champion, that he did it in your place. He didn't just do it for you. He did it as you. So that even though we didn't lift a finger to fight, that victory has been credited to you and to me. <laughs> this is our story, guys. This is it. He's the author. He's the perfecter. And we can join this story continually because it's not about us. It's about Jesus who's done it for us. Let's We uh, pray and respond to the word of God. Maybe some of us uh, live feeling like we constantly need to make ourselves right before God. If we need to fight against Goliath, and if we don't win, then God's not going to accept us. That's not the message of Scripture not the message of the Bible. The Old Testament or the New Testament, the message of the Bible is that Jesus did for you and Jesus did for me what we could never do on our own. And that victory has been granted to us. And so as we reflect on these words, isn't it the, a beautiful thing that these cowardly 
chicken, lazy soldiers should have been fighting. They could celebrate and jump up and down and say, we won because of the work of another. This morning, Jesus is saying the same thing for us. The cowardly, the fearful, the messed up, the broken, the ones who didn't fulfill our call, the ones who tripped and stumbled along the way, the ones who were scared to honor the name of God. And we too can laugh and sing because Jesus did it in our place. Let's give thanks to God and let's worship him. Say, thank you, Jesus, that you did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Just honor him with our lives. As we do that, if there's a person in here and you just feel like you haven't gotten it right, just feel like I've had to do it myself, I've had to earn my way to God and I'm too messed up to come, and you feel like today God's saying, you can come as messed up as you are. This is about Jesus, not about you. It's about his perfection, not your imperfection. It's about his righteousness, not your unrighteousness. He's saying, would you today make that great exchange of your sin for his perfection so that you could rejoice with the church? If that's you, as we're praying for just a minute right now, over the next minute, if you feel like that's you, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand where you are. And then uh, we'll, uh, we'll pray for you. And Let's just continue to pray in here. Let's pray and ask the Lord, just giving thanks to God. Help us to understand the wonder of your victory and the power of your victory that because you're alive, I don't have to be defeated anymore. That because you won, that victory has been given to me. Let's pray for asking. Help me never lose the wonder of this love that you have for me. Let's, let's pray together for a minute. And at, at any point you feel like, yeah, I need this Jesus in my life. You can raise your hand and then we'll continue on our service. Thank you. Okay, see you in the front. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for giving us hope when there was no hope. Thank you that though we face the impossible realities of death, of sin, of hell that await us because by nature we were objects of wrath because we're rebels against our maker. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus in weakness into our world to do for us what we could never do for our own, on our own what no one could do for us. Thank you that you rose from the dead victorious to give us hope, defeating death through your death. Help us as we trust in you now to continue to find strength. And for the two folks in here who raised their hand, we pray that Jesus, you would minister to them as they open up their hearts to put their trust in you wholeheartedly committing themselves to you, would you enter into their hearts, enter into their lives, transform them from the inside out,
that they might be, that we might all be who you've called us to be. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for being the king that Saul and that others could not be for us. We can only love you and say we love you because you have loved us first. So would you now take our hearts, take our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.